if you would please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8. If you stand, I'll be reading again verses 1 through 13 as we really are, are working our way slowly through this first introduction to the theme in these three chapters of 8, 9, and 10 of fleeing idolatry. Certainly something that in our day and age is of vital importance for us to know how to live in a society that just as the Corinthians is saturated with idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause my brother to stumble. Please be seated. Now, I'm sure you remember the historical narrative in which Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the law of God, really Israel's covenant, their, their governmental articles, as it were, the commandments by which they will live. And he goes up on the mountain, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people immediately begin to stray. They even say, who is this Moses? He led them across the Red Sea. He was their leader to bring them out of Egypt, and after 40 days, like, we don't even, we don't even know who this guy is. We need a God. We need someone to lead us. And you might remember that Aaron, who was Moses' right-hand man, was supposed to speak for God to the people. He then aids in this idolatry. And there's this somewhat ironic and, and really horribly sad statement in Exodus 32 when Moses comes down off the mountain. So he's up and God says, your people are the people, my people, but the ones you are leading, they're sinning. You need to go back down. You got to take care of this. So Moses hurries down the mountain with Joshua and he sees the people out of control and he confronts Aaron because Aaron was supposed to be overseeing them. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought this great sin upon them? I mean, these, have they harmed you in some way? Did they do some horrible thing to you that you would respond back to them by leading them into sin? You were supposed to take care of this. Your actions have then led them towards this great sin. You've brought this great sin upon them. And Aaron says this, you remember, don't let the anger of the Lord burn. And you know the people yourself. They're prone to evil. What's he saying? They're sinning, not me. It's their sin. Right? These people are prone to evil. They said to me, make a God for us who will go before us for this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. 40 days. We don't know what's become of him. I said to them, whoever has gold, tear it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And I jumped out. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. They're sinning, not me. Well, Moses is, or Aaron is really pleading innocence and the sin of others 
that is something that we too often do. And really is part of our whole text, where it would seem that there were those in Corinth who had led others into sin, but were pleading their own innocence. They're sinning, not me. No, no, the Christian community, the church, is different from any other group of people. We're not bound together with social or economic bonds of unity, but by a true, vital union with Christ. Thus, when we bless and minister to each other, we are blessing Christ. When we sin against one another, we're sinning against Christ. This is why the Bible is so clear that we cannot say that we love God and not love our brother. Any unloving act towards a brother or sister in Christ is, in fact, an unloving act towards Christ. And this, for the believer, is unthinkable. This is the Christ who is truly God who died for us, who provides us with eternal life, and in whom is our blessing, our receiving the heir of all things. Our entire goal in life is to exalt Christ by being conformed to his image. How can we sin against this most precious object of our affections? The horror at sinning against Christ is especially important to remember in the exercise of our liberty. We're not free to exercise even the most obvious of our liberties unless we are sure that any or brother or sister will not be harmed in the process, that we will not somehow lead them into sin. For to sin against them is to sin against Christ. So what we'll see this morning is that true believers recognize that sinning against another Christian is a sin against Christ himself, and thus they exercise rigorous biblical care in their exercise of Christian liberty. True believers recognize that sinning against another Christian is a sin against Christ himself, and thus they exercise rigorous biblical care in their exercise of Christian liberty. Again, very simply, to sin against another believer is to sin against Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, we are beginning the discussion of what it means to flee from idolatry. The Corinthians were immersed in it, coming out of an idolatrous culture as Christians, trying to learn how to live within that culture, not only themselves, how they could escape idolatry, but also how they needed to live so that those around them, their other believers, would be strengthened to escape the idolatry which was so rampant. And of course, this applies directly to us. Our idols don't look the same, but we are immersed in idolatry. That's never changed the idols of our hearts, the idols of our culture. And we as Christians have a responsibility to know how to live in such a way that we do not participate in idolatry and that we do not draw others into that participation either. So Paul, after really laying out the issue of knowledge that we know there's only one God. I mean, the key to this is verse six. There is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things. We exist for him. There is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. We exist through him. I mean, this is the basis of our confession as Christians. There are no other gods. But that does not mean that we cannot still be harmed by the worship of false deities, either drawn into it, participating in it in some way, or drawing others to it. Because as Paul makes very clear in chapter 10, false worship is tied to demons. It's tied to demonic influence, and that exists everywhere in our world. No real gods, but lots of real demons. And so we need to be very careful in our worship and in the things we do in our culture as Christians that might somehow put us back into idolatry, or as we've been seeing in our text, draw others towards it. And that's what he began to work on in verse 7. He says, look, although we all know from a, I would say, an intellectual standpoint that uh, Christians, this basic confession, there's only one God, yet he says in verse 7, Not all men have this knowledge. And he doesn't mean that some Christians in Corinth didn't know that there was only one God. 
you can't be a believer if you don't confess the one God. It's not saying they didn't know. It's saying their knowledge was not fully exercised. And this is, we, we talked about this last week. This is so true. So often Christians, having come to Christ, delighting in him, knowing truths of the Bible, know principles about the word of God that they have not yet fleshed out in their lives. And we need to be very careful that we don't think that because we've all heard the same things, that we're all living at the same level under those principles. We're not. We need to learn how to apply each principle carefully in our lives so that we can honor the Lord. And we need to be careful that we know where other people are in the congregation, those in our sphere of influence, so that we can help draw them towards those principles and not stumble them as we will see, not bring about their own spiritual ruin because we aren't aware of the things that they are struggling with. We are a community of faith, not a bunch of individuals who come together on a Sunday morning to worship the way we want. We worship in light of everyone else in this room and all who are part of our body specifically. Paul is making this very clear. You may not stumble a brother. So on our outline, really picking up from last week, just expanding a bit to try to really, I hope, bring some clarity as well as some practical application to some very difficult principles. But again, just to remind you, right? first he says, look, this was last week where it is, we must be careful of those who lack knowledge. They're still eating this meat as though it were sacrificed to an idol. They used to worship deities they thought were real. Now as Christians, even in the action of eating the meat, they're thinking in their heads, oh, I'm still worshiping. Even though they know that that isn't true, their conscience is still going off, saying we've got to be very careful that there, to understand there are people like that, and then we need to not exercise our liberty to do certain things. For example, eat that meat in ways that would harm others, and that's on our outline now. Be careful, the second point from last week, was be careful not to stumble your brother. And we were looking at this principle of liberty, and that was found in verse 7, at the end of it. It says, their conscience being weak is defiled, but the principle is, food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. The basic principle is, in the actual ingesting of that meat, nobody is sinning, right? Just the physical eating of the meat. It's not a sin, right? And that's important for us to remember. Again, we've talked about the fact that the way we eat, our attitude, that, that impacts the actual action. But again, the simple act, the meat itself is not tainted, and the act of putting it in your mouth and chewing it and swallowing it does not commend you to God or cause you to be, for God to have lack of favor with you. Really important that we understand that. The physical action in this case is not sinful. However, because they were viewing it in their minds, the way they viewed that action Right? They were, it became sin to them because of how they viewed it. So therefore, if we are doing something that we know isn't actually sin, it still is on us, as we will see, to make sure that it doesn't draw someone else to do the same action and it becomes sin for them. We have to be so careful. Right? So the principle of liberty is that the practice of liberty requires great care. That was verse 9. Take care, beware, watch out other people's walk before God is our responsibility, right? To a very strong degree, how other people react to Jesus is on us. And that's really going to be the point this morning. It's on us because it reflects our relationship directly to Christ. You cannot simply live as though, well, everyone else's sin is their own. Everyone else's responsibility. That's all up to them. I'll just do my thing. No Christian ever says that with a, with a clear conscience, ever. Just my, I just live my life, and whatever else does around me, that doesn't matter. No, it always matters. So we talked about the fact we have to be careful to what we're doing in the name of Christian liberty, 
is first actually warranted from Scripture, and then that we've carefully considered the impact of our liberty on those around us, and we want to be careful to cultivate a consideration of others as being more important than ourselves in all things, because the second principle is that any practice of liberty of ours must not stumble the weak. And remember, that stumble is a really strong word. It sounds like, oh, I tripped you. I'm sorry that was, you know, I'm sorry you had a bad day. Skinned your knee. A, st- a stumbling block is the idea of, of having a boulder fall on someone and crush them. That's the idea. It's a really serious issue if we stumble a brother. And we talked about the fact that to stumble a brother in this context is to encourage them to violate their conscience in an exercise of our liberty so they actually sin because they're sinning against their conscience. So the general principle is this. We are never free to act in any way we choose. We must always carefully consider the spiritual welfare of others. Romans 14, 7. Not one of us lives for himself. Not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I mean, that's simply reiterating 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We exist through him. Death or life, it's all for the Lord. This, now, these are things you know. You're sitting here this morning, the vast majority of you are going, Chris, we know this. But Paul is driving this home in a very practical application when it comes to considering the spiritual welfare of others. That everything we do in light of our Christian life must also take into account even the consciences of our brothers and sisters, what they're thinking inside their heads. We're supposed to take care to not harm them in this. So that becomes the practice of liberty. That's two. Liberty must then be exercised carefully. The principle is take great care. The practice is then actually be careful. Remember that the Corinthians in this case Right? The, what we call the strong conscience Corinthians, the ones that could eat the meat knowing that that eating wasn't sinful. They were only half right in their exercise of liberty here, remember. Because he says in verse 10, if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple. Now, when they were dining in that temple, eating the meat, they were not sinning by the eating of the meat. They were right in that. And that's what they were saying. We can eat the meat. There's nothing wrong with it because food does not commend us to God. And they were right. However, they were only half right because in actually being back in that temple, in that worship service, chapter 10 tells us that they were participating with demons. So even here, we need to be really careful that sometimes we can exercise our liberty in ways that are partially right and partially wrong. You got to be so careful when it comes to this. All right, I have the right or the freedom to do this thing. Maybe, maybe not. I've talked to Christians like, I've got liberty to do that. I'm like, I don't think so. Let's talk about that. I think you're missing a principle. I think you're not paying attention to something. So just because you think you have liberty or you haven't yourself found the principle that you're violating doesn't mean that you aren't. And it may even be combined with something that is actually correct. You do have liberty for that thing, but not in the context in which you are practicing it. Do you see how how really fine-tuned the Christian life is. This is not just simply a matter of, well, I've got a couple principles, a couple commands, and I live as I want. No, no, God is much more interested in your looking like Jesus than you think he is, I think. Everything about you, everything you think, even concerning your conscience as it goes off for you or against you and things that aren't even sin in and of themselves, God cares about it, and you are supposed to be properly honoring him in it. Why? 
because we're some kind of self-righteous church that gives you all these rules and regulations? No, because Jesus matters and holiness is done to please him because we preach Christ and him crucified. He died for your sin. He died so that you could look like him. Everything matters. Everything. That's Paul is saying. Everyone's like, hey, we can do what we want. We're having a great time. We're, we're spiritually gifted. We're, we're, so we can, we can exercise our liberty. Well, they were half right in the exercise of it and half wrong. Their knowledge then strengthened the conscience of someone else to commit sin. So someone was walking by, seeing them die, dining in the idol temple. They were, had come out of that idolatry, and in their view, eating the meat was sinful. And now they're thinking, well, that brother's doing that. And man, I would love to have that social occasion. I'd love to be back with my family like they seem to be. I'd love to have the social connections and political connections that eating that meat brings. I'm I'm headed back. And as they're going, their conscience is strengthened enough because that's the fascinating term he uses. He says their conscience is strengthened. What does that mean? Generally, we think of that as a good thing, right? My conscience is strong enough for me to do this thing. But here... I think our understanding is they, their conscience was strengthened just enough so that it was not going off strongly enough. Right? It had been bolstered, edified, built up to not go off loudly enough to keep them from doing it. So even while they were there, even then excusing it on the basis of conscience, they're in their head, they were still like, I'm not sure this is right. And what does Romans 14 say? If you're not convinced in your own mind, then it is sin to you. What is not from faith is sin. So these brothers, who actually were right in being able to eat the meat, that that was not a sin, were then leading their other brothers, who had a weak conscience, as it were, strengthening their conscience to eat the meat when they weren't fully convinced in their own minds. But then the second problem was what? Not only were they now eating the meat in a way that wasn't right for them, because they're they're still in their heads, they're like, I'm not sure this is right. It was too soon. But then they were also back at the idol temple sacrifice. And so they were then being drawn back into demonic worship. This is bad news. This is not the rightful exercise of liberty. And so Paul is coming for them to say, you need, you, you're actually, what does he say? You're ruining them. This is not, this is not minor you know, terms he's using here, to destroy them. So the improper exercise of liberty, so practice of liberty, liberty must be exercised carefully. Why? Because the improper exercise of liberty can bring spiritual ruin on a brother. Again, this is still all review, but I thought it would be helpful for us to understand why this is ruining another Christian. Because it isn't destroying their spiritual standing before God. You can't do that. You're not destroying their relationship with God on the fundamental level. They're still Christians. But you can ruin another believer really strongly. And by the way, as a Christian, you can ruin your own spiritual life. You know this to be true. You know there are believers who have ruined their lives because of the foolishness that they get involved in, and it isn't, doesn't take them away from salvation. They're still Christ's, but their lives have been ruined because of the sin that they have been involved in, and a lot of that, it all has started. Every bit of it started with their conscience. Hear me carefully. Every bit of sin you ever committed began in your mind, and it began by you overrunning your conscience to then commit the act of sin, because your conscience either went off and you ignored it, or you have seared it so strongly that it didn't even go off. Everything starts with the conscience. It is the first warning bell that God has given you, the first defense against sin that has been provided in your head. And I would, I would offer it is the most important one because it all starts in here and nothing can take, in one sense, nothing can take that away, right? Unless you yourself 
right? Bring harm to your conscience and perhaps are led astray by someone else who does that. That's what's going on. That's why he calls it ruining or destroying a brother. Why? Because you're helping them sin. And, and, and it's, this is so fine-tuned because you, you're actually bringing about a sin in their own life with an action that isn't even sinful. That's how important God views how you think in your mind. Do you think that doesn't matter to God? Whether or not the thing that you are doing, if you don't believe it is pleasing to God, even if it is something that could be, you are still sinning. Romans 14, 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 14 of Romans 14, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks, and by nothing, just purely physical things, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's how important God views your thinking. Because everything begins in your thoughts. Your thoughts are who you are. Right? Your inner man, mind, will, affections, conscience. That's who you are. You're not something else. That's who you are. Verse 23 of Romans 14 he who doubts is condemned Condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. I mean, that's strong. Is sin. Not because the action, not because the thing was sinful, but because the action became sinful because in your mind, you didn't believe it to be right and you went past your conscience. So you're causing a, another believer, he's saying, look, by going back to this idol temple, by doing this, you are drawing another believer to violate his own conscience, and in doing so, he is sinning, which is the first way he's ruined, because any sin is harming his spiritual walk, right? But it gets worse than that, because if someone's conscience is seared, that is, it goes off, and they walk past it, the conscience is, it functions for every sin, right? For everything in your life. And if you sear it in one aspect, it's seared in others as well. If you dampen it down, it's like taking the meat. I used to work at McDonald's. We had a sear tool. You take it, you sear that meat down on it, grinds it down in so it gets that nice flavor. Okay, McDonald's, not nice flavor. It's still good. But that's, that's what you're doing your conscience. Every time you walk by it, doing something you're not sure is right, it is putting a layer of, of, of hardened callousness on it, and that affects every aspect of your life, so you start sinning in other ways, and your conscience still isn't going off as it's supposed to. Talk about ruin. That now, this warning bell inside your head is supposed to keep you from dishonoring and displeasing God, even though you're not unto your eternal damnation, but you're unto the, the displeasing and displeasure of a holy God, to the harm of your own life and to the harm of others, everywhere in your life, because you're searing it in this one area, you are less sensitive to sin in other areas. I tell this to my children all the time, because when they're sinning, as, 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 and, and particularly my children who claim to be believers, because, and, and, but even for unbelievers in my home, they have been instructed in the right way to think. They've been instructed with the right principles. And that's true in nearly all of your homes. As good Christian parents, what are you doing? You're pouring out biblical principles to your children. They've heard what's right. They know they're supposed to honor you. They know they're not supposed to harm their brothers and sisters. They know they're not supposed to lie. They know they're not supposed to steal. Every time they do that, every single time, they're searing their conscience and they're removing from themselves the blessing and benefit of that primary means God has given them to stop sinning. That's a really serious thing and you can't let them keep doing it. That's why you discipline them. No, you just step past your conscience again. You just step past, you know, you got your homeschool kid who's been cheating and lying about how often, how many hours he studied Every day you come home and say, did you do this? And he's like, yeah, I studied this much. He's searing his conscience and he's harming himself in every other way. You can't let him continue to do that. Even as an unbeliever, again, we'll find out in chapter 10 that unbelievers' consciences can be harmed. 
Even their conscience can be informed properly, and if they walk past that, it's a harm to them because they'll do wrong things. Do not think that walking past your conscience is a minor issue. Your life can be and will be, if you continue to do that, ruined. You're doing all kinds of things that you should not be doing, and your conscience gets to the point where you don't even hear it. And yet that sin is still being attributed to you. God is still bringing his discipline and there's still harm happening to others even though you're like, I don't even know. You should have. So Paul's saying to these Corinthians who are strong, you're ruining these weaker conscience brothers by causing them, by drawing them to violate their own conscience and that drawing them in that is searing their consciences and they're developing habit patterns of sin which as I think I ended with last week could lead them to actual physical destruction. Because we're not talking about spiritual, ultimate spiritual destruction here because they're believers. But if a believer continues in patterns of sin, it can lead to their physical death, both incidentally or providentially. It can also lead to Jesus, to God, actually calling them home. 1 Corinthians 11, we've discussed this. Talking about eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which is directly tied to staying at the idolatrous sacrifices, as we will see. You can't go to the idol sacrifices and then go partake of communion and say, oh, we're all good. Partake of demons and partake of the table of the Lord. You can't do that. And if you do, God will judge you as a Christian. He will bring his discipline. And how strong is that discipline? It says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's the word used there. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Christians dying because they have tried to partake of idolatry and then go to the Lord's table and say, it's all good. And Paul is taking all of that back right and laying it right in the lap of those in Corinth who say, hey, our conscience is strong. We can do that. What they do is not our, it's not, it's not on us. No, it is. You are eating rightly in the wrong place. They are then eating wrongly and in the wrong place and you might lead to their actual ruin. Your liberty, and then he really brings us home, was our last point last week, where he says, you are doing this, he was weak, is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. How could you take hold of your rights when Christ laid his down? Are you better than Christ? Is your liberty more important than the life of the Son of God? And the answer, of course, is it couldn't possibly be. You're wanting to do your own thing is not more important than Jesus laying down his life for you. See, it's all built around Christ. I'm not talking about, so again, some kind of self-righteous you know, church that just wants to impose its will on you. When you sin, you say, well, Jesus, you laid your life down, but I'm not laying my life down. And when not, you're, you're not even, you aren't directly sinning, but you're leading someone else to sin, you're saying the same thing. I've got the right to do that. Jesus, I know you laid your life down, but I'm not laying mine down. I'm not gonna give that thing up. I'm not gonna stop doing that thing that I love to do. He's saying, look, this is a brother for whom Christ died. It's all built around the sacrifice of Christ. As we'll see, our final point this morning is that, so when you sin against him, this one for whom Christ died, you're actually sinning against who? Jesus. A horrifying thought to any believer. Horrifying. And yet not enough for any of us, myself included. So see here, the improper exercise of liberty can cause you to sin against a brother. So back in our text, verse 12 
So this idea of, of okay, so, all right, I let him or, or I did this thing that caused him to violate his conscience. Well, all right, he's now sinning because that happened, but I didn't sin. We tend to think of it in that way. I was just exercising my liberty. It wasn't a sin. What does the text say? You are sinning. When you exercise your liberty in such a way that another brother is led to sin. Wow. Wow. Because we're real quick to step back. And, like Aaron. I didn't do that. They're sinning. Calf just came out. Now you were in charge. Your sin, that you led them. He says, you placed this great sin upon them. You led them into the sin because you did not take them away from it. If you and your exercise of liberty do that, you are in fact sinning. Because we say things like this. Hey, I can, you know, someone comes up and says, well, you made me sin. You got angry, so you made me get angry. Oh, I didn't make you get angry. <laughs> no, that's on you. You're the one that chose to get angry. Well, that's true. He's not in any way removing responsibility from the weaker brother who actually sinned. But he's saying, you sinned also. Don't try to distance yourself from that. Don't, don't try to bust out your theology. I didn't, nobody makes you sin. You chose that. Well, you made it easy. And I certainly think by application, you're making it easy at certain levels brings the sin upon you. When you laid out the red carpet, which is what they're doing. We're going to dine in that idol temple. We're going to kick back our, you know, our, our, our drink that we're drinking there, libations poured out to the gods and eat that meat that's there. We're going to do our thing. And, well, I'm sorry that you're sinning. We didn't cause that. No, you're sinning. So I wanted to bring that home a little bit more strongly because I, I don't think I got quite there in the text last week. No, you are sinning against the brethren. And this is something to be confessed and run from. And it says here, as we'll see, sinning against the brethren is to sin against Christ. Well, why is it again? Why is it sin? Again, because in your, in, in your doing this action, you are then making it easy. You're drawing them towards a sin that you ought to be aware that's a wrestle for them and therefore, you are responsible for your own sin in this. doesn't mean you're responsible for theirs in that sense. You're responsible for your sin. The wrong exercise of knowledge has wounded this weak conscience. As I said last week, remember, that's not just they got mad or they don't like it that you're doing that. They're offended. No, it's usually the self-righteous who are offended by you doing something. I can't believe you're doing that. I would never do that. I was raised not to do that. No, the issue here is they were drawn to do the thing you wanted to do. You wounded by building up their conscience to do something that they weren't ready to do. And in this case, to go back into a place in which they're actually sinning. We do help others sin and that becomes to us a sin. We've stumbled them. And Jesus takes stumbling very seriously, Matthew 18. He says, he brings a little child before him and he says, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean that you know, we, we all, all need to be like little children and that we don't know anything and that we just come to Jesus without any information. It's such a foolish understanding of that. It just means that you understand that you've got no power. Little children have no power, no authority, nothing. To a society in which those children were, they were nothing. You have to recognize that. Before Christ, you have no power, you have nothing that you can accomplish, you have no authority, you're totally helpless and when you begin to recognize that, then you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. That's the issue. He's talking about Christians, not just little kids. Christians are, are like, they, they have to come like little children. I was nothing. I have nothing. I offer nothing. I need you to give me everything. But if you cause one of those who has done that, says Jesus, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, same word, same concept, you do something which draws them into sin. 
Jesus says it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Couldn't, I mean, how could Jesus use any language that's stronger than that? You stumbled. You put that stumbling block. You didn't even directly sin necessarily, but you made it easy for them to do so. It's a serious thing to stumble another believer, and we need to take it far more seriously, certainly by not directly sinning against them. I mean, we would all understand that, right? I, I think. I should never sin against another believer, but too often we say, well, I'm not sinning against them. That's on them. I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to spend time at church. I'm not going to spend time that is benefiting and blessing others in relationship. I'm going to live my own life. Really. Because even in that, you are bringing harm to another and maybe even by your example, they will be drawn away to do the same thing. So, what does it mean then? Let's, now we need to, because you're thinking, whoa, okay, you've just raised the level of seriousness, which I hope I have in your own mind, but I've not really given you any direct examples of what this might look like in our society, so I'm going to try to do that. In Corinth, it was what? Going to the idol temple, eating the meat, another brother sees it and is drawn to sin in two ways, not ready to eat the meat, they still do, and not, they should never be in that position, and they are. So how might we do something like that? A couple thoughts here, right? Now, I think where this directly, so on your outline, you're, you're underneath this, the improper exercise of liberty can cause you to sin against a brother. Well, how, what does that look like? When the action directly connects you to something sinful or idolatrous. I use the word connects on, port, uh, on purpose. Or really cause you to directly participate in something sinful or idolatrous. What might that look like? For them... Remember, it was being at the sacrifice, partaking of food, that is, you're participating in the ceremony. If you're there handing out tracts at the ceremony, it's a different deal. If you're eating the food at the ceremony, you are participating, you're agreeing with what's happening. So how might we do that? First, I want you to realize that most of these are pretty obvious. I do not think that a large majority of our, con- of, our, of our congregation is somehow sinning in this way and drawing other people into sin in the same way that the Corinthians were. I don't think that for a moment. We're going to get, there's more subtle things you might be doing that might be helping someone else sin. That should bring us conviction. But I think most of these are fairly obvious and most of you are not doing these. But we still need to be careful about how we think about these things. So what would, this, what would, what would it be to, to be be doing an action which directly connects you to something sinful or idolatrous. How about going to a Catholic mass? I mean just going. I mean walking up to the front and partaking of the elements. Is it wrong to eat a piece of bread? No. Is it wrong to drink a little sip of wine? No. Is it wrong to do it in the context of false worship? Yes. Catholicism is not worshiping Jesus in the proper way. And that particular ceremony is a false worship ceremony. What they believe about those elements, that it becomes Jesus himself, that there's a sacrifice going on, that's idolatrous. And you may not participate. And if you do, it's not that you're worshiping some other god. That's demonic worship. And you may not do that. Most of you aren't. And yet, if you come from a Catholic background, that might have been and may even yet be a wrestle for you. Your whole family is doing that. You just want, there's there's a, a, even a wedding and they do mass there. I mean, do it everywhere. And we'll just participate. It's not, you may not. That's worship. It's not, just, it's not just community. It's not just family. It's worship. But it's very clear. That, one, I just think very, that is the communion service. It's not showing up there. It is participating. Now, 
in America, that, I mean, that's their other place. For example, maybe you have a Muslim friend, and so you go, and he's bowing down, or she's bowing down on the prayer rug to the east. And you go, well, I, just, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I, I know there's no real gods. I'm going to pray to my God why I do that. You may not. That is their worship service. You may not bow down with them as they worship a false god, Allah, and, and say, well, it's all fine. You may not participate in the worship. So some of you may have wrestled with that. Maybe you will have others. But if you're worshiping, you know, kind of a Mormon temple, right, and perform the acts there, you can't do that. For most of you, are like, okay, that seems obvious to us. And yet, hopefully, even that is helpful for you. But in, in our society, there are just not a whole lot of those types of things that we have to wrestle with. If you're a Hindu or were a Hindu, and you live in India, and you come out of Hinduism, everything around you is a sacrifice. Everything around you is built around worshiping God. You can't go to a temple without eating a meal. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is radically directed towards those who are immersed in other religions. And then they're trying to come out and they're trying to work their way through, how do I do this? You may not eat a meal in a Catholic or in a Hindu temple, right? Because that's participating in the service. Right? You may not, and then there's a whole series of other things. Anytime we go to India, there's always, there's people walking along the road wearing all of these, you know, various colored things or tying things around their heads, around their wrists, all in worship of a particular God. Can you participate in those ceremonies with them? The answer is no. Those are directed towards the worship of a God. Yet everything in their society, all of the social work, all of your family ties, governmental ties are all built around doing that. So for us, in one sense, there are less of these things in, to, to, to wrestle with. If you live in a, in a society where religion is built into what you do, this is much more difficult and very applicable in even more ways than to us. Now, so that's when the action directly connects you to something sinful or idolatrous. Next would be when the action is seen to directly affirm something sinful or idolatrous. So you're participating in something which affirms some form of idolatry. For example, attending an LGBTQ wedding or a trans wedding. Why would I say that that is, is a similar principle? Because a wedding is a place of affirmation. Nobody goes to a wedding to say, well, you know, I, I don't agree with what's going on here. Right? When you go to the wedding, what are you doing? You are agreeing because you are participating. In fact, what do they, what do they used to ask? Does anyone here, was any reason why this, the ceremony shouldn't go forward? Speak now or forever hold your peace. I don't say that at weddings because somebody's going to stand up. And they, some, you know, mother-in-law is going, I, I don't think this ought to be happening. But the idea is you are participating, you are agreeing with what they're doing. Now, is marriage wrong? No. So this, this fits exactly what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with getting married. In fact, everyone, believer or unbeliever, is supposed to be married if they're male and female. One man, one woman together. You can't affirm that. And so by going, you are affirming an idol. What? The idol of perverted sexuality. That's what you're doing. You're worshiping along with them at that idol ceremony. This would probably, I think it also directly applies to things like going to a, uh, an LBG, LBGTQ, I can't even say the word, uh, rally. Maybe even something like a pro-choice rally where you are actually rah-rah for the slaughtering of children. You're walking along agreeing with everyone, shaking hands, high-fiving. Now, most of you are going, we would never do that. I got it. I'm simply trying to express to you those would be the kinds of things. So in some ways, I hope that helps you. You're like, okay, I'm not doing that. Good. <laughs> don't ever start and don't somehow think that that's, you ought to. But I tell you, there are those now that would tell you to go do these things. 
They would. That all of this is fine. And that in doing so, you're simply affirming your friendships with people. Or you're not wanting to offend people. No, you would be harming. And if someone sees you walking in the LGBTQ rally, plus rally, and they see you doing that, and they've come out of that, and they're like, what? And they want, to, they want their friends back, and they don't want to be considered a bigot. They might grab the sign and start walking, and you've destroyed them. In two ways, right? Because their conscience is surely going off about, about that. So attending those things. I would say there's other events, like the Burning Man Festival or something. just built around idolatry and gross immorality. Sorry, you, you can't go hang out. Could you go pass out tracks at the gate? Yeah, I think so. Could you be at the pro-choice rally and be graciously you know, encouraging people to love Jesus? You certainly could. Screaming in their face? No, but that's a whole different issue. So what you are doing at the place matters. If they were at the idol sacrifice telling people about Jesus in Corinth, fine. But no, you're kicking back and consuming the meat. I hope you see the difference there. Now, one final thought here. It's when actions probably would be seen as affirming something sinful or idolatrous. And here we're walking one step away from the direct application of this principle, so you gotta be careful here. There will be some conscience issues involved here. But you know, let's say that, that uh, I feel the freedom to head down to the local bar on a Friday night and just kind of hang out and you know, kick back a, a brewski with, with, the, with a group of people there, a, a group of people who are celebrating their idolatry, celebrating their unbelief, hooking up, heading out you know, for the night to go do things, rejoicing in the fact that they hate God. And I'm kicking back there drinking a beer. And my friend walks by, who's just a new believer. I come, he's come out of maybe some of those things. Look at me going, what's that? Now, is my drinking a beer, and here's where, is, is, is the drinking the alcohol, as long as I'm not immediately under the influence, there is some kinds of alcohol that that could happen, right? but probably not, you're drinking your beer, one, and you, and you take, is that a sin? No, the Bible says it isn't. We can talk, you can, I can get the emails later. The Bible does not say that's a sin. Does that make it right for me to do it? In that context? No. Right? Because, because uh, they, they rush back and they're going to, oh, well, they're coming out of that lifestyle. That to them, that was a worship of their idol of pleasure, worship of their idol of sensuality, and their conscience is strengthened to go back and do that. I've harmed them because they're drinking and they're not ready to even drink a beer, besides the physical things that could happen. But I'm also harming them because I'm in a situation in which God is being, is being mocked. Now, I know, I know into some of your minds, maybe all of you, wait a minute. Jesus drank with tax collectors and sinners. He did. Did he get drunk? No. Right? Absolutely not. Did he drink with those, or you know, eat meat, have, a, have a, a dinner, with those who hated God and were shaking their fists at him in open rebellion? I would answer you, no. Why would I say that? Luke 7, 28. So Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist. He says, I say to you, among those who are born of woman, there is no one greater than John, Yet he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Did you, did you understand? Do you, do you know that those who were hanging around Jesus had first come through the ministry of whom? John the Baptist. If they were still hanging around, they had heard John's call to repentance. And the vast majority of them had been baptized in that baptism. Were they saved? No. It was a baptism of repentance. They recognized their sin. They didn't have the other answer to that. But they were hanging around trying to figure out how do we deal with our sin. That's why Jesus can say, these are those that know they're sick. 
Whereas the Pharisees, it goes on to say from that same verse, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They didn't even recognize that they were sinners. So they would not receive John's baptism. So it's a totally different crew. It's not a group of pagan idolaters screaming out their hatred of God. Hey, let's go kick back a beer and eat a meal. It's not what Jesus was doing. Well, how about Matthew? He was a tax collector, right? And he, gets, he comes to Christ, he follows Jesus, and then there's a big party at his house. Well, sure, Matthew 9, 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. What was going on at Matthew's, at, at Matthew's dinner? They were celebrating his life in Christ. They were celebrating the fact that he was now following Jesus and all of his buddies were like, what is this? Still part of those I'm convinced, I think the Bible speaks to it, that had been recognized the nature of sin and had recognized John's baptism. Then he says, you know, I said, why are you reading with tax collectors and sinners? Because I'm here to save the sick and they know they're sick. You don't. Totally different. So be careful of just simply saying, well, I can go in any context and do something that's not sinful with a bunch of people who are celebrating their sinfulness. You have to be really careful there. And you have to be really careful of unbelievers who, or believers who walk by and go, what's that? I might take this one step further since I've already broken open the idea of that drinking, that having a, a, a beer or, or drinking a glass of wine is not a sin. How about at your home? When you got a new believer or someone that you don't, someone who comes from another town and you don't know anything about their life and so you're there and you, you have total freedom to drink a glass of wine at your dinner table. Total freedom to do that. And yet they are coming, they have a weak conscience. They're coming out of having just, again, spent their whole life worshiping that idol. And here you are kicking back the very thing that had destroyed them. Well, if they sin as a result of that, who's it on? You. Their sin is their own. But if you draw them back into that lifestyle, that is on you. So maybe you would set aside the bottle and the six-pack in such a way that they wouldn't see it. And you're like, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, that's just faking. It's not faking. There's nothing wrong. You're not setting it aside because you think it's wrong. We'll talk about this in 1 Corinthians 10. It's fine for you, but it's not for them. And that might be harmful for them. So I want you to carefully think about these things. Maybe one step removed from where we are, of course, but maybe not. That's probably pretty close. If I'm doing the best I can to try to give you a practical example. And there's some other things. Some of those other things you might want to make sure that you talk with other people about. Do you think this is the thing that we're talking about? Do you think this particular action, talk to someone about that if you feel, if your own conscience is being, you know, I don't know if I ought to be doing this. Actually, good. Don't keep doing it until you determine that you ought to be. That would, that would be this entire principle here. So go talk to someone and consider the nature of how that works. So now back to our really, our, our final point. So the improper exercise of liberty can cause you to sin then against Christ. That's D on your outline. The improper exercise of liberty can cause you to sin against Christ. So now back to our text. Verse 12 says, you're, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And here's where he breaks out the big guns. Because it's not that it's a light thing to sin against someone else. But you do understand that the highest harm that anyone, that any unbeliever can think of is what? Hurting another person. That's what they'll say. You can do anything you want as long as you don't harm someone else. They'll tell you that. That's the best they can do because they do not have a higher view that when you actually harm someone else, that person's value really comes from what? Christ and being created in his image. So it's not the highest harm to hurt someone. It's the highest harm to sin against 
Christ. And the reason that it is a sin to harm other people is because they are creations of God. That's why that matters. And if you take God out of the equation, you've missed the whole point. Christians realize that they cannot harm others, and first and foremost, other believers, because when they do so, they're directly sinning against Christ himself. And that horrifies us. Why? Because we're in union with Christ. Romans 6 says this. What shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, how do we die to sin? We, we didn't die. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that is identified with, this isn't water baptism, baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. We've been placed into his death, identified with him, and therefore what happens to him happens to us. We've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We died with him because we've been identified with him. Right? And we are raised with him because we are in union with him. The Spirit of God coming to live inside of us puts us in a real union with Jesus. So the things that happen to him happen to us, but it also works back the other way. The things that you do to other believers who are in union with Jesus happens to him. That ought, we don't often think about union with Christ in that way, but at the judgment seat, when Jesus says, look, you saw me in prison and, and you fed me and you clothed me and you, you visited me, they're gonna say, when, when did we see you? You're in heaven, we're standing here before you. You're the Lord Jesus, exalted to the, to the throne of God. The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. But, but the negative, the omission is also true. Unbelievers there are like, when did we not visit you? When did we not care for you? When did we not provide for you? It says, truly I say to you, verse 45 of Matthew 25, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So both commission, if you were to do something for someone on a positive sense, it does it for Christ. If you were to withhold that which you should have done for them, you withheld it from Christ. That's what the church is, serving and loving and pouring out your life for Christ as you love others. And if you harm other people, you're harming Christ, Acts 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from, the, from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He's persecuting his people. Because this raises the level of our understanding of how we interact with other people. They're not just people. They are Christ. They're in him. See, if you were to lure a little child away from their family and then harm or abuse that little child in some way, if after you were apprehended and, 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 and sitting on the witness stand and the parents were to come up and scream at you and shake their fists at you, you harm my child, you, you couldn't possibly say something like, well, why are you upset about that? I didn't sin against you. What does it matter to you? I harmed the kid. Right? No, you harmed them. In a much deeper way, you harm Christ in a more infinite and total way because he loves more and feels more and cares more and is more holy than any parent. And so you have harmed him in a much deeper way. We need to remember that. He's the one whom we love. When Paul says... It is all about Christ and him crucified. He means it. It doesn't mean that other people aren't important. It simply means that he is first and foremost. And everything we do is in light of him. And he is the one 
who values others. We must not sin against Christ, which leads to the last point, which is going to be all of chapter 9. So I'll just simply say it. It's the abandonment of your liberty. Lay it down. Lay your liberty down. It is all about abandoning, not claiming. Paul's going to spend a whole chapter saying, abandon my liberty this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. I had, I could have done this, I could have done this, I could have done this. I chose not to do any of it. And he says here, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, ever. Not one time, I won't touch the stuff. He had perfect right to do so. His conscience was fine. He was not at idle temple services eating. He could eat the meat from the marketplace at any time. He says, I'm, I'm not gonna touch it. Because is that how you live your lives? Would you be willing to change anything everything about your life for the benefit and blessing of someone else? Are you so stuck on what I get to do? Not simply your Christian liberty, but your liberty as an American. I can do this, I can go here, I can accomplish these things. Hey, I love our freedoms. But you understand, of course, that being free in a country like ours means that you have lots of opportunities to lay it down to bless somebody else. You are so free to come here on Sunday morning that you ought to be here. You're so free to go over to someone else's house. We have so much money, so many resources to bless and benefit others. It means that you ought to be using them to do that. And we must be so careful that we don't claim some Christian thing that would harm a brother. And and final thought, do you know the people in this church well enough to know whether or not one of your actions would stumble them? You need to know that. And if you don't know that, you need not to do it. That's how strong this is. My prayer is that we as a church will grow in such a way that we would love Christ enough that we would then love each other to never sin against them by either stumbling them or directly sinning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for your holiness and, and righteousness that you have drawn us into, that you have enabled us to participate in. And Lord, I pray that as a congregation we would never do anything which would even draw someone away to sin, which would stumble them, which would make it easy for them to violate their own consciences. And Lord, as we live in this sensitive way, as we live in light of your own sacrifice, that you lay down your very life, that you set aside the privileges and prerogatives of heaven, of being glorified and honored and praised for all of eternity, that you step down into the muck and mud of of living on this earth, taking on the form of sinful flesh, Father, I pray that we would live like you in your precious name.